1: Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America.
2: I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening
0: to Stop the Killing. Welcome to today's episode Over the four seasons we've been recording Stop the Killing, we've received numerous requests to cover one case in particular. It's the Cleveland Elementary School shooting that took place on the 29th of January 1979 at Grover Cleveland Elementary School in San Diego, California. It was a case where the school principal and a custodian were killed, eight children and police officer Robert Rob were injured. There is a reason that this case has stuck in people's minds because the perpetrator was in fact a 16-year-old female who, when asked why she committed the crime, reportedly said, I don't like Mondays, which might in fact now be ringing some bells for people because it's a phrase that was picked up by the Boomtown Rats and immortalized in a song of the same name. And not only is there a song, I don't like Mondays, Today, we're joined by the author of a book called I Don't Like Mondays, The True Story Behind America's First Modern School Shooting, In Lee Hunt. So with that, welcome, In Lee, to the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners?
1: Okay. Well, I'm, my name is N. Lee Hunt. I'm originally born in South Africa. My parents were British, and we moved out to America when I was still single digits. And this is where this case that we're going to talk about plays in, because I was a young boy in San Diego, sort of living the American dream, and just around the corner from our house, this you know world-changing atrocity, as I see it, happened, And it springboarded my family from just being a normal family in California, living the American dream, blah, 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 to actually being, wait, America is not what we, what we thought it was. And since that time, we've just watched the increase of shootings in this case. And of course, we have the song. I don't like Mondays. It follows me around through my life. So I wasn't a victim of the shooting, but it certainly changed the way we lived our lives in San Diego. And it just stuck with me my entire life. And nobody had ever captured the information. Nobody had ever spoken to the shooter or tried to come up with the the ideal of tell me why, which is the lyric of the song. And I think that just keeps coming back is tell me why, tell me why. And I just decided I wanted to know why. And I reached out to the shooter. To just ask the question, and we've been pen pals ever since. I wouldn't say we're friends, but I wouldn't say we're enemies. And I wrote the book, maybe not just to tell the truth of the story from start to finish in all of its dirt and all of its <laughs> the, the bad things that happened in her life before and after the crime. I just felt it had to be told in a certain way, and I was lucky that that when it was released, it got a pretty good review. And I've recently got an honorable mention as the uh, best new true crime author, and I'm really pleased. I, I believe it's the first modern school shooting just by the way it happened and what happened afterwards and the glorification of the crime, which is, is something I hope we get to talk about today.
2: Oh, I'm sure we will. Go <laughs> for it. I
1: want to hear you tell the tale. So go back to San Diego, 1979. And anyone who knows San Diego back then, it was a much smaller town than it is now. It was America's finest city. You're talking 700,000 people, not like the four million San Diego County is. It's, it's a huge place now. Back in the, the late 70s, it was kind of like a Spielbergian type of neighborhood. All the houses were track homes. They were all in a big row down these you know, long, straight roads. They built a, an elementary school and a high school for every sort of you know 100,000 occupants. And this shooter lived across the road from the school. And somewhere along the line, whether it's the house dynamic or, or the father or the brother or somewhere, they decided that it was time to just break two windows in the front glass Monday morning, shoot out these windows, incidentally using a twenty-two rifle and a pellet gun. Her family's from Arkansas, they were taught at a young age how to shoot. It's, a, it's a, a common scenario across America where kids are taught to shoot before they've even learned to really ride a bike. This family was no different. It's very unusual for San Diego for mm-hmm. that to happen. There's not an awful lot of people in the city of San Diego who, who would learn to shoot a weapon so young. So I think maybe that was a shocking thing. Anyway, as the kids arrived, 8.30 in the morning, the bell was ringing. The school was just getting started. The, the, the principal came out to unlock the gates to let the kids in, and shots rung out. Um, in the end, it was eight children shot. The principal, the custodian, were killed. They were shot directly in their chest. A police officer arrived to help. He was shot through his neck. He did survive, but never worked as a police officer again. There were some fantastic actions from the local police who were arriving from all over town. And I want to put it again in perspective 1979. This is before 911. This is before, you know, really? the, the communication that we have. This is, there was no 911. There were no paramedics in San Diego. The police yeah. were the ambulance.
0: I never even thought so, about when 911 came about or any yeah. of those emergency numbers. You 911 know, it it did into, come about.
1: It came out two years later. Okay. And this was one of the, one of the activity, one of the the events that happened that actually brought on paramedics. So at the time in San Diego, the county of San Diego had paramedics, but the city of San Diego didn't. So the sheriff was able to call on paramedics to come and, uh, to the scene. And I think that's important when we look at what's happening in America today, or I guess around the world today. By the way, you know, active shooters are are treated and way it's dealt with. I I think this case is 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 quite unique in the fact there was no training for such a thing. Luckily, the San Diego police officers who arrived on scene were all ex-military. They had some type of training. They were able to decipher where the threat was coming from. A really fantastic police officer named Ted Kazanek, he kind of commandeered a, a big garbage truck, a, a big rubbish van, one of these, you know, these huge sort of things you see that block traffic every morning. He managed to drive that down a narrow sort of driveway into the school and block the entrance, blocking the view of the shooter at wow. the exact same yeah at the exact same time this was happening my father who was editor of the san diego tribune at the time he had heard through the you know through the radio through the scanner that they were using, the police scanner that there was a shooting going on in san carlos now a lot of people didn't know where this area was in san diego it was a kind of a, an unknown little neighborhood he immediately tells his guys go out find out what's going on we've got a 10, 10 a.m. deadline for the afternoon edition and go and get some news they immediately pull out the old crisscross directory, which is the Haynes directory, where you can look up under address, not under name. I don't know if you remember these. It's quite a big oh, in American.
2: Yeah, Sarah service. might not know if they have those, but we had them all the time. It was great. I was a reporter in in, in the 70s and the 80s, and I love yeah. that crisscross directory.
1: Yeah, If every, you had an it,
2: address, you could look it up and match a phone number and a name. If you had a phone number, you could look it up. And I find the name it. and the address. It's fascinating. Much better than yep. Wikipedia. Much better than the internet.
1: Much more accurate. So what did the reporter do? You'd know exactly, Catherine. So he looked at where the school was, saw its address, saw the house directly across the street, and called that number. And lo and, behold, wow. lo and behold, a young girl answered the phone. And he said, are your parents home? And she said, no, I'm home alone and hung up. He called back and said, hey, I heard there's a shooting across the road. What do you know? And she goes, oh, yeah, it's me. And he went, sorry, sorry, you're shooting across the road. And she said, yeah. He says, why are you doing that? She says, well, I just don't like Mondays. This livens up the day, but I got to go now. I've got to go do some more shooting. And she hung up and he called back. Anyway, what's interesting is that, that, that I, I knew that story from my father. He came home and told it to me. So she stopped shooting just long enough to answer the telephone, which gave enough time for the police to pull bodies away and actually secure the area. Snipers wanting to position. I was able to speak to a lot of the, the police officers who were on the scene that day and talk about their actions. Because in the time that I was writing another case happened in Uvalde, at the time I had just finished the book, I was just publishing. And a lot of the news broadcasts and stuff that I was reading, there was a very different behavior from the first responders. So in writing this book, it's almost interesting. is Did these cops act heroically because they were unaware of what the consequences could be? Or did they act bravely because they were just brave? I think they did because they were just brave. They saw where the shooter was positioned. They knew the threat and they went ahead and, and secured the area. That was a brilliant achievement from eventually six hours later, it was after school. The police worked very sure that she had had come out of the premises before kids were coming home from the schools around the neighborhood. So it was very important that this was all wrapped up and done before the kids got home because anything could happen. Kids breaking through the barriers, they blocked off the roads. They did a, a stellar job of doing it. She finally came out. They negotiated with her. She went from being a you know, a malicious murderer to being a very scared young girl. It was a 16-year-old. She didn't speak. They took her downtown. She was arrested. She was charged. She pleaded guilty in the end. And she went to prison, and she's still there now. The story takes a strange turn from there because, as Bob Geldof, Sir Bob, as he calls himself, he hears this story on the news and of course this is sort of the post-punk era where everyone was making cash from chaos all the bands from britain were trying to break america and make millions of dollars he suddenly finds his way to write a song that can identify with the american people it didn't quite work out the way he expected It did have a massive number one in, in eight different countries but but not the hit in america that he expected and anyone my age or or, or even younger will hear that song and know exactly what it's about. And it was just about one of the most horrible things that could have happened in a, in a very small little family oriented neighborhood. Her father did some mysterious things afterwards. He began a relationship with her juvenile hall cellmate while she was awaiting trial. Uh, what she, she was 16. He helped her to abscond from an open facility. They had a child together, which is odd. And then. This is all while his daughter. Like the way
2: you just said that politely, you say which was odd. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I'm trying
1: another? not to. I'm trying not to swear. I'm trying. I'm trying my best here. Um, oh,
2: you don't have to do that on our account.
1: Okay. Well, um, I'm not. I'm not going to do it just on purpose now. And just let, I'll let it flow. <laughs> I'll let it flow organically later yeah. on. No, he was. He was a bad fella. He groomed this young girl who was vulnerable into his home and had a child with her and then when the going got rough he just got rid of her he just threw her out and she had the money i don't know where she went i i did end up speaking with her family and and how things have gone wrong for her in her life it's quite a horrible story then the perpetrator of the shooting years later suddenly announces that she was uh, interfered with by her father as well a lot of people don't believe that story i'm not in a position to say that anyone lies about such a thing and there is certain evidence suggests that her father was a very bad dude. He was an awful human being. So for her to say that, that she was interfered with by her father, I, it's it's believable to me. So I did some exploring in the book. And I had since found out that that at the time that she was plea bargaining for a an agreement for how, her sentencing phase, the father was still in this relationship with then a 17-year-old, which is against the law in the United States. Not in the UK, but is in the United States. He was forced because she was pregnant, to marry her. So you can't marry in California under 18 without both parents' agreement, but you can in Arizona, which is only a four-hour drive from San Diego. So he got the mother who was happy to get rid of her daughter. They all drove out to Arizona just over the border, a bit like sort of the way people go up to Gretna here in the UK. They go right up to Scotland to get married. It's a similar sort of thing, I guess, when when you're marrying someone who's underage in California. Note the sarcasm. So they jump over to Arizona, they get married, so he can avoid going to jail. And this is all happening during her sentencing phase. So instead of wanting to tell the truth about her father, she respects the family's privacy, and she accepts the deal, serving 35 to life. And she's still in prison now. She's one of the longest serving prisoners in, in California. California has, has a, a very interesting legal system. So when she was originally arrested, is she going to be tried as an adult? Is she going to be tried as a child? Eventually, it was ruled that she'd be tried as an adult, and she was given a sentence to match. And she's been in prison, and she's had a, an up-and-down time in prison. And and I, I think the legacy of this is that she may very well be the first modern school shooting. In 43 years, from the time that she did the shooting and I finished the book, America still still in a struggle over this issue, is still still battling and fighting with with giving children guns and since i moved to britain i look at guns in a totally different way i respect the right to own a weapon i respect the right to bear arms i just my daughter's turned 16 and i would never think of giving her a rifle and that's just a personal opinion that's not I'm not making a huge political statement but this guy decided that his daughter even though she was skipping class and he knew that she was taking some of his prescription pills, and the brother was a known drug user. He chose to give her a weapon and leave her home from school on multiple days in a row. But the parents had divorced, there was nobody
2: really watching. She was sixteen when her father gave her a Christmas present of a, a semi-automatic rifle. It was a t- and t- five hundred t- rounds of ammunition, I believe is what it was. I would have is said it's right? more than that. I would say it's more than that. It was a twenty-two
1: caliber long a long rifle so it's considered Mm -hmm. by by american standard as like the starter rifle if there Mm -hmm. is such a thing but you know it's it's a low caliber it's a pop 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 it's not a bang bang bang
2: 22 is a smaller caliber you know if you're going to shoot tin cans off of a board kind of the concept of what do kids learn how to do they're going to shoot a 22 rifle which has not a lot of recoil and it's kind of more fun to aim at some you know, pop bottle that's sitting on a fence, and you can try to hit it with your little twenty-two round. So I think that's the concept, but why you would give a 16-year-old. She became
1: a very accurate shot. She was known in her oh. family to be the best shot in the family. And, and from going down to the family land in, in Potrero, where they, where they lived, and, and was shooting mm-hmm. cans off the fence, using her pellet gun and her twenty-two. And she kept it immaculately clean. She loved it. She treasured it. And the father felt he was being a real good guy to give her this weapon.
2: Sandy Um, Hook, right? Sandy Hook, the mom at Sandy Hook, same thing. Dozens
1: of cases like this. There's dozens and dozens Mm -hmm. of them. And Mm -hmm. the 22 is this is not rare for the 22 to be used in such a shooting, but it can also be in the wrong hands, quite deadly, Mm -hmm. and if if used accurately And, and and. She certainly proved that it can be used.
2: And the rifle had a scope on it, right? It had a a scope so she could aim better. Right.
1: And she complained often that she would have killed more. She was telling the interrogators and the reporters who called her that, you know, if the scope was in better
3: position, she would have shot more people. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas, It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.
0: Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? maybe you just lost it. Well, stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today.
1: So what's happening is there's a big road in between. There's a a sort of a a car park in front of the school, a parking lot. And as the kids were arriving, being dropped off by their parents, you know, parents have their windows up. It's a a January morning. Uh, It's quite chilly by San Diego standard, which is nothing up there in Detroit where you're from, Catherine. But in San Diego, it might have been dipping down to the 50s. It was freezing. Anyway, so... (laughs) She's shooting <laughs> yeah, for San Diego's, that is freezing. So she's shooting out the window of, of the front door of her house, which had this sort of diamond-shaped glass. She was in sort of like a, a SWAT position on one knee shooting. And as the kids were arriving, this gun is going pop, pop, pop from inside the house. The children are getting out of the car thinking, oh, it's firecrackers. It just so happened it was the Chinese New Year that weekend, and there was a celebration in the area, and some people thought maybe it was just fireworks. The same thing, you hear this, people hear the pop of a gun and they believe it's just fireworks or backfiring. Well, they were, kids were being shot from behind as they were walking into the school. So it isn't as if they could see the shooter It was coming out of nowhere and there was an echo. There were buildings there. There's the walkways of the school are open aired. So they're just kind of like covered walkways, not necessarily hallways. And so there was an echo around the school. So I think it wasn't immediately known where the shooter was coming from. And I think it wasn't until the police arrived, until they locked down the area, until they were able to really identify it. So the the students were essentially sitting ducks. And the two that were killed were actually the adults. I've spoken to her directly about it. She maintains that she was on drugs and she doesn't remember the incident. The toxicology reports came back as negative. She didn't have alcohol or drugs in her system. She's claiming that she was high on PCP, which just happens to be the only drug you couldn't test for in
2: 1979. And a very convenient reconstruction of the story, which... Not to challenge, and I don't know, you're communicating directly with her, but, you know, we certainly know that after an incident, killers invent their own version of their story.
1: Yeah, yeah. And she's done exactly that. She's been denied parole. Uh, I I don't even know. I, I can't even count how many, but a bunch of times going back to the 90s. And I think the chances of getting out are probably pretty good considering what's happened recently with the changes to the American penal institutions. And of course, California politics has changed dramatically since 1979. So it may be very well that that this school shooter gets out and joins your community.
2: What do you think about that? Yeah, good question.
1: This is tough because I I don't think I'm impartial anymore. I've been pen pals with her for a long time. And I know the ins and outs. of. I know that she is a 60-year-old woman who's obese. She has no teeth. She's heavily diabetic. She's on about 15 different meds. I just don't see her as being a threat to society. On the other hand, what she did was atrocious. And I think if she were to spend her whole life in prison, she will know why. Go back to the tell me why. I don't think she's been up front with exactly what was going on at the time. And I think for me, you kind of need to be honest with yourself before you can be honest with anyone else. That's just my opinion.
2: What do you think is still missing from the truth?
1: I don't know. I don't know. But if I were, if she she claims that she was on drugs and she had no idea who she was shooting or what she was doing that day. And I think that's a lie. I think she, she had a plan. I think she maybe even had like a dynamic manifesto in her head of what she wanted to achieve. She certainly spoke to her best friend at the time that she was going to do something big. That seems to be a given. I think was more premeditated than she's letting it out to be. And I think because she hasn't told the complete truth, which is the same as lying. I think she's just sticking to her cards and she's doubling down on it and thinking this is the way to get out. And maybe it is. California law has changed. Maybe, maybe she's right. It certainly hasn't worked in 44 years. And I know that in all of her parole hearings, and I attended one last year, the first thing that comes out of the parole board is, are you ready to tell us what happened that day? So I don't think I'm alone in thinking that. And certainly historically within crime, it's very, very difficult to get parole when the victim's families are still alive and attending the parole hearing and, and suggesting that you shouldn't get out until you tell the truth. But again, California law, as I say, it's, it's a moving target and, and it's just changed dramatically since I left California.
0: Has she ever displayed any remorse at all for the crime?
1: It, it, the best way to describe this is, is with her words, I kind of sort of am, you know, with it, she went to prison when she was 16, and she's never seen the light of day. She speaks as if she's still a 16-year-old. She communicates. You know, she talks about candy and kittens, and, you know, it's it literally is a rest development. She believes that she's been really apologetic because she said sorry, um, which is- So she's good. Oh, she's all good. Yeah, yeah. She believes by saying sorry that she's all good,
2: and yeah. They know how I feel now because I've said it. You need to do more than that. Do you think she remembers the details and she's just not repeating them? Because you're communicating with her. How does she communicate? You know, how, how do you see her in communications? She articulate? You said she speaks like a kid, so... Yeah, she, she is articulate.
1: Uh, but she was articulate when she was 16 when she went in. She's not of low intelligence. She's quite bright. Can you tell me about the victims? Yeah, the children who were shot were all from seven to 11 years old, um, have all made full recovery, have all done quite well with the exception of one or two who went off the rails for different reasons. The police officer, Officer Rob, uh, a San Diego legend, he was fairly new cop. He managed to retrieve the custodian and the principal who were both killed. He managed to retrieve them get them to the hospital where they both died. He had a, a neck injury. It ended up costing him his career as a police officer. He went into school security in Bakersfield, as it goes, and sadly lost his life to cancer during the writing of the book. And he's an absolute hero. Robert Robb is a San Diego legend. Burton Ragbert, as he was known, was the principal. He was a brand new principal to the school. He uh, uh, ex-military man, absolute educator, was loved by so many. He came from a different school to take over for probably one of the most loved principals who just left that school. Everyone seemed to like him. The parents, he was so popular. He already started in September, but immediately he had become the fan of so many. And he, of course, was out in the yard opening the gate to let the students in with a smile on his face as any good educator should. So sad, so sad that he was shot in the chest twice and killed. Mr. Mike Sucker, Michael Sucker, they knew him as Mr. Mike. He was the custodian. He was the custodian at the school when the perpetrator attended at a younger age. So they would have known him. And he was quite a big, strong ex-Navy guy, decorated the military. You know, he was going to take care of anything. And when he saw a child being shot in, on his car park, in his ground, in his turf, he was the first to run to go and save them and took a bullet for them. I think I could safely say that, that Mike Zucker and Burton Rag, the two victims who died, were there saving children. And there's no doubt about it. They put themselves directly in harm's way. And they stood their ground and let the kids in. They were ushering children to safety when they took bullets from the shooter. And they're
2: they're San Diego legends and heroes as well, just like Officer Rob. I'm sad to say that, you know, we do still have shootings, although school shootings are incredibly rare. Elementary school shootings, even more rare Mm -hmm. in the United States. Like, we've learned some lessons, but we haven't. I think when you talk about your shooter One of the lessons we haven't learned is I was just up in my hometown, Detroit, not too long ago, where, you know, they're trying the parents uh, who gave their 15-year-old son that purchased for his Christmas present, his weapon that he turned around and took to school three days later and shot four students.
3: Mm.
2: So why are you buying your children guns and why are you not securing them? So I think we've come a long ways, but we still have a long ways to go.
1: Some of the shooters I speak with, I'm speaking with about a dozen of them now. All of them are exceptionally remorseful. The shooter from Cleveland Elementary School in 1979 is not so much. Yeah. Um, she is apologetic, but not overtly remorseful.
2: Well, you know, I have to tell you something I used to tell judges. You know, I was a prosecutor in Chicago. And oftentimes when it came to sentencing, I would have a subject in front of the judge. And the subject's attorney would say, oh, your honor, my client is so sorry. And my client, you know, begs the court's forgiveness. My client is so sorry. And I would always say, your honor, her client is sorry she got caught. That's what she's sorry about. She's sorry she got caught. She's never said, I'm sorry that I committed the act. She's sorry she got caught. Mm -hmm. Then we'd sentence him to jail.
0: (laughs) Something a psychologist once said on one of our other podcasts, what is the utility that that person is getting out of you? And I wonder, you know, how you come at that, Lee, when you're talking to people that are going to get something out of you in terms of you're going to be able to publicize their story or you're uh, perhaps going to amplify their...
2: Yeah, and let's be honest, somebody who's in jail, there's nothing they like more than visitors. As an FBI agent, We get called to jail all the time. Law enforcement gets called to jail all the time for somebody who's got a secret, who's got a story, who's got a tip about something, because they get a chance to leave their cell and go do something else and talk to other people. And there's nothing more motivating. And sometimes those people might bring them something. And so there's nothing better, bigger holiday than to have visitors in jail. And they do anything they can to continue the visits anything. How do you navigate
0: that Lee? Then when you are kind of dealing with these people, do, have you got a radar that you
1: yeah, yeah, think I've, I've, is but, good
2: or I mean, it's pris,
1: very difficult. My prison radar. We should, yeah. get, we, should, we should, we should, we should make a name for that and, and trademark it.
2: Well, and you're getting what you need.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's, let's be clear that the, that, that the beautiful thing about being free is that I can pick and choose who I write to. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had a prisoner write to me through my publisher. They wrote directly to me and wanted to speak to me, and I messaged them, and we've now been communicating. I thought that was bizarre that someone was seeking me out. That was a, a moment where I thought, do I really want to be that guy that prisoners yeah. want to talk to? Yeah, There's something very scary about this communication that we have, and I'm I'm not actually really that comfortable with it.
2: It might be because uh, he's still controlling. He's controlling the conversation. So absolutely. that's, my, and, and that's my FBI advice.
1: No, no, he is controlling it. I've never been scared by anybody in print. I've never read anything where I was threatened or scared. I'm I'm kind of thick-skinned that way. But there is something quite scary about this guy who's in prison, who's serving life, and the way that he, he speaks to me and wants me to write about him and wants me to help him get his story out, like you say.
2: Imagine how uh, how cool it is to be the guy in prison. Who can say he's got a book being written about him yeah yeah i mean I, that's I that's you. the risk that we all know that's the risk yeah. that we take we'll see that to come with the parkland shooter who's been sentenced to life and even though the victims wanted him executed in mm. florida which is possible mm. more than other locations there will be many books written and he will have many conversations with people and yeah he'll be able to brag about that because he said he wanted to be famous
0: Interestingly, we had a um, school shooter reach out to us to ask if they could come on the podcast and we told them straight out, well, yeah, if you want to tell your story, that's fine, but be warned, we will never tell your name. You will be telling it Mm -hmm. in an anonymous fact. Never heard diddly from them. There's still that element of, it's all about me and I'm going to have my name and fame there. And I thought that was the most telling thing because this guy has got quite a, a profile now in the media and it is sweet and squeaky clean and i am changed my life around, I'm doing it for good, but there was nothing more that told me exactly what his motivations were when there was crickets, when I said we weren't going to use his name.
1: I've communicated with somebody in the California prison who sounds very similar to a similar situation where they um, are in a position where they might be getting parole as the legal parameters are changing in california he thinks that if he goes out and actually sells himself as a politician or puts himself in this situation of look how good i am i've changed i might get parole and get out and i've spoken to him about you know why are you putting yourself out there in a certain way and he said well i just need to make it very clear that everybody understands i'm sorry and i'm gonna do anything i can i took it for face value and i believed him Um, i'm not so sure you know, after, after long conversations with him as to whether that really is the motive. But certainly mm. for face value, when he first offers it, like you, like you, Sarah, when you first offer it, you think, okay, great. Yeah, oh, let's have a chat. But, i tell
0: you what, I'm so skeptical now of anyone like that. And mm. the, the thing that really nails in the coffin for me was when I've done two con cases that happened with family members of mine. And each time these con artists get to trial, and they are pleading black and blue. They go to um, restorative justice. I'll do anything I can. They write letters. I will not sleep until I have repaid every single penny that I owe you. Go straight to the judge and then as sure as, you know, Mm. anything, the next thing after he's had a sentence, the appeal comes in to get the reparations absolutely repealed. So no justice at all. And I oh, just like, it makes me so angry when I think about how they can weaponize something that people need so much, you know, I need a sorry. And it's just even another, yeah. another cut, another wound in the victims.
2: I think there's they're just a, not sorry. Some, you know, not, not to say every single one, but there's, there's some that are just not sorry. Yeah. I they're agree. just not.
1: Right. It, it is true.
2: Lee, it has
0: been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Are you able to share with the audience where they can find all things in Lee Hunt?
1: Yeah, go to N-Lee Hunt, which is N-L-E-I-G-H-H-U-N-T, huntmyname.com. My book is called I Don't Like Mondays. It's available on Amazon and there are other retailers available. I think it's the true story of the first modern school shooting. And it just recounts a very sad life and a very sad event in great detail.
0: Well, thank you Wonderful. very much. It's good to see you.
1: It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.